Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. Thanks for braving the cold this morning, chipping the ice off or whatever you had to do. It was 26 at my house. I have a barometer, though, that is uh, a living being, my dog, and typically he's going to want to go outside, not this morning. That's <laughs> pretty awesome. I had to call and say, hey, Donna, the, do- the dog's not outside. He doesn't want to go, so you'll have to kick him out when you leave. But at any rate, a little cold, a little change in the air, and can you believe it, we're in the last sermon of the series in 1 John. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can open to chapter 5 and put your finger there, because we'll be there in a second. And then we start Advent next week, which is, I would say shocking, but it's, I think Rick said it last week, it's like Christmas, it comes every year. And um, we're here, we're here right now. We have looked in John chapter five at a number of key kinds of topics that love progresses, that's what started out the first week, that it endures the second week, that it hopes and that it is confident and And this morning we peer into this idea that love initiates. And just to kind of set things up, I want you to think of our world this morning and how many times in the past week or maybe even longer, the past month, you've heard someone express anxiety about not feeling safe. If you're anything like me and you've looked at the news, then you're familiar that there are some significant things going on in the world that bring or strike anxiety and fear into us as human beings because we don't feel safe. That could be as uh, prominent and blatant as the potential for a terrorist attack, or maybe not even the potential, that actually happening. We've seen that in the news in various countries around the world. That seems to be pretty steady now in terms of uh, us perceiving what's happening in the world. But it could come all the way back down to even that discussion that's on college campuses. For a multitude of reasons, students stepping forward and saying they don't feel safe. And all that's involved there, it doesn't matter where you stand, Uh, on the issues and whether or not you think they should feel safe or not, people are expressing the idea that they don't feel safe. Safety is a big issue for us. Safety is, um, our desire is to create the environments and circumstances that would put people at ease. So how do we create a place that's safe? I would say to you that John, the apostle who writes this letter, does so in a unique fashion. It's been said that this letter is um, a showdown, that John is literally throwing down against the new teachers, the new teachers of Christianity that, that have subverted and corrupted the, the initial truth that established the church and the apostle John, this old guy, really coming off the island, if you will, or I don't know where he's communicating from, but this is between like 70 and 100 AD. So it's a ways back and we don't know exactly when it was written, but John is confronting these new teachers and saying, you're disrupting the stability and it's no longer safe. And I will now speak and I want to bring assurance 
and the understanding that safety cannot really happen uh, with just human endeavor. That's an impossibility. And just to kind of stir your mind here this morning, when I look back, I was born into the 20th century and historians and statisticians would say that that particular century saw more human beings kill human beings than in the entire history of humanity. So it begs the question, are we more safe today as a result of human effort? And John wants us to all understand that it is love that initiates, that's going to bring safety, and at its core, the central truth is you cannot be safe without God. That is impossible. And that Jesus Christ provides all that's needed for safety and security in God's love. So his letter really places a great emphasis on the differences between the false prophets and the antichrist, if you will, and what really is truly genuine Christianity. But it's John in his pastoral sense that you can see in writing this letter that has great tender and care. The purpose is for him to proclaim to the Christians, here are the qualities that you possess as a result of God's initiating love, joy and holiness and assurance, and they're yours. And this is a, a reminder, reminder's not strong enough. This is an actual teaching to say we must revisit this consistently, that there is an assurance to your life, that it will go on into eternity. Well, what does that feel like? I tried to think of an, an analogy that somehow would capture our imagination related to you owning something that you don't know a whole lot about. So I tried to say, okay, what's, there's a lot of things I don't know about in my life that I own, okay? There, there are a lot of things. But what I find fascinating is my iPhone. And that there are moments, if I would hand that to a grandchild, that they actually know more about how it operates and what's in it than I do. Certainly with sons that kind of grew up in that era as well. They said, hey, dad, do you know your phone can do this? And they go, I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought it only made phone calls. You know, that's not true. I know a little way around, but but the, the... point is that I didn't realize how powerful it is. And they'll show me, or the computer. There's lots of things that you can think of that way that you assume and you say, okay, I can work my way around it, but I don't really know what's, what's there and in my hand. And John's saying, this is your faith, this love that initiates from God to you. And I want to stir you up. I want you to, to come to a fuller understanding. And so he writes this letter to believers to a community of faith and says, can I give you this assurance? So let me pray just as we get started and we'll jump into chapter five. God, thank you for your word and that you never cease to want to assure us of your love for us, how you desperately want to see us understand and appropriate that love as the engine of our lives that truly propels us forward, conforms us into the image of your son, that reaches out in friendship to 
fellow believers that provides safety and security. God, I will take your spirit this morning for truth to be transferred into transformation. But I pray we're just not trying to gain knowledge this morning, but instead truly to be transformed as a result of hearing. So if you would be gracious and merciful to us, may that be true this morning. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. So in chapter five, it, there's a whole bunch of ways to look at this, but John very significantly starts with the idea that there are some tests that we can kind of explore on our own to determine uh, whether or not we're in the faith. Now, it's kind of a circular thing. I don't know if I can, if I can actually show it to you, but in my mind's eye, I can see it. There is this idea that... Um, there must have been a question related to am I in the faith that was being raised by these false teachers and John has been hitting it pretty hard in the whole of the chapter, or excuse me, the whole of the book. And now gets to chapter five and kind of summarizes. So this first one is a theological test. Look at the first verse. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So John right away says, the starting point is this belief or faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? But he prefaces this with everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It's interesting grammatically, but let me just put it to you this way. Rebirth precedes, precedes uh, faith. It ultimately actually creates faith. That is to say that God's spirit's got to move in our heart first in order for us to be regenerated, to actually believe. If left to our own, we don't believe. So it takes this action upon God. But I want you to breathe easy for a second. If you have uh, affirmed that in your life, that you believe in Jesus, or even if you haven't and you're kind of on the fence, the very fact that you would be here this morning testifies to the idea that God is at work in your life. And if you would feel guilty for doing anything this morning, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but rather than get down on yourself with that guilt, I want you to understand that guilt is a marker that you actually understand God, that you believe him. Because if you didn't feel guilty, you wouldn't care. And you wouldn't be here. So breathe easier this morning as we start. This spiritual rebirth is not so much the result of human volition as it is of a prior divine intention. Now, connected to this is the idea that we would actually keep his commands. This is... Uh, um, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving and carrying out his commands. Verse two. Verse three, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. This second test isn't theological so much as it's moral. However, hear me correctly here because preachers and pastors slip into this and I'm prone as well to want to speak to the idea of living a moral life as somehow earning your right to be loved by God. That's not true. That's not true. It's easier to preach that way sometimes, though. It's easier for me just to tell you what to do. 
and say, hey, if you don't do this, God's going to get you or he's not going to love you or whatever the case may be. Guilt is a faster motivator in many senses. But what God is saying here through John is that's not the starting point for morality. The actual understanding of the love of God is what pushes you into following his commands. And if you do have a desire to follow his commands, be assured that you are indeed saved, that God indeed loves you. Otherwise, you'd pay no attention to it. Even if you feel that direction and you stifle it, I'm saying, that's okay. You have felt the movement that way. That's God who's placed that in you, placed the engine of that morality into you. Otherwise, morals, where do they come from? You can make up your own. So we come to this understanding of what drives our behavior when we actually have motivation to do what God has to say. So this saving faith is that which John gives God primary credit for. And that makes it possible to have the outcome of having love for others. Just get this, so it's, it's, it's indicative before the imperative. And every time that you open your Bible and read, you wanna be looking for this. The indicative is this pulpit is on the stage. It's not this pulpit should be on the stage. It indicates that it's here. All right. The imperative could be this pulpit needs to be back there in storage. The should and the ought is the imperative part. God never puts the imperative in front of the indicative. So he's going to tell you what's true before he tells you what you ought to do. And what's true is he initiates. God loves you. Therefore, it makes, you, it makes it possible for you and I to love others. So John is determined, really determined here to show that the impulse that gives rise to faith in our hearts and then results in love comes from God and not from humans themselves. And that's very hard to get our mind around because we can choose to love and sometimes we will just bear our cross and burden and love the other person. And what God is saying is that if that is a pure human effort, it's bound to fail eventually. It doesn't have enough juice to carry it through. And lastly, in this first set of verses, we love our brothers and sisters in the faith faith, when we pursue the mess. We might love them in their face too, I think, maybe. But this is the social test, if you will. There's a way for us to confirm that we love our fellow believers. Now, it's, it's counterintuitive at this point. If we simply try to say, I'm going to be a better Christian and love others, I'm not saying you can't get somewhere with that. You can, but it'll eventually leave you dry and flat and you can't do it and you were never intended to do it. God knew this from the beginning and knew that the engine that would drive us all to be able to do this comes from him. And it's really when we love God in such a way that we're transformed into obedience. Now, the surest way to fail in the responsibility to love others is not by simply not choosing to love others, but it's in not choosing to love God. 
And I know that sounds weird, but think about it for a second. If all you're going to do is try and white knuckle your good and godly service to your brothers and sisters, man, you're going to have to hold on tight. If God means little to you, then people are going to mean little to you. So here's the counterintuitive piece. We have to return back to God and look at him. We have to reaffirm what God has done for us. We have to allow God's love to seep for us to stew in his love. And we have to say thank you. Show me a person who's growing spiritually and I'll show you someone who's growing in gratitude. You've heard me say that before I say it again. But as we would look at God and be consumed with his love, the understanding of what he's done for us, that changes us and puts us into a grateful spirit and actually gives us the energy to move outside of our being. Now, why is this hard in the world? Well, it's hard in the world because the world pulls us down in a different way. When we speak about loving others, the world really wants to kind of look at this from a romantic view and to say love is what you feel. If feelings become the highest truth, though, uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult because there's a lot of times when I just don't feel it. And that can't be the highest truth. And John is saying it's not the highest truth. We overcome the world with love for God through faith, a faith that joyfully embraces God's commands. The world substantially lacks these things, and we overcome the world by appropriating what's true. So my circumstance, whether I feel like I'm receiving love or whatever my situation would be, does not dictate what the truth is. The truth is what God says. And what he says is, be assured in your faith, I love you, and you are now free. Because I initiated love, you're free to do the same thing. And I will power you with the ability to do it. Now, in this next section of scripture, 6 through 12, in true pastoral form, John shifts our attention from our personal experience of faith to the truth and character of what faith affirms. All faith has to have an object, and our object is Jesus Christ. And that's where we place our faith in him. And John says it this way in verse 13. excuse me, verse six. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. This is now a threefold witness to who Christ is, what he's done. What do we see right off the bat? Well, that Jesus Christ is the one who came and he came by water and blood. So let's just take water for a second. That refers to baptism. Prior to Jesus showing up on the scene, there was a precursor to the ministry of Jesus who was John the Baptist. And he spent a considerable amount of time calling people to 
uh, be cleansed of their sin, to be baptized and prepared for the Lord who was coming. And he set up shop out on the Jordan River in the wilderness and Jews flocked to John and he baptized many of them. That would be very countercultural for a Jew. Only Gentiles got baptized into the faith. Jews had no need of baptism because they were already God's chosen people. But John's preaching something counter now and saying this is preparation for a new era and Christ will come and he'll usher this in. And this baptism for the remission of sin is crucial for you to be washed, to, for you to repent. Okay? And Jesus shows up and he goes to John and he gets baptized. What's wrong with the picture? Does he have sin that he needs to confess and repent of? Does he need remission of sins? Well, no. Jesus is perfect and led a sinless life. So why be baptized? Why must he come by water? He comes to identify with you and I who are lost. He will not deny himself any experience that you and I would have. He's not gonna ask us to go anywhere that he's not willing to go and did not go. He's gonna go there. So he comes by water. Now there was a false teaching of the day, a really heretical teaching that said something like this, that Jesus shows up on the scene as man, but when he gets baptized, he's then God-infused. Does that make sense? So he's God-infused at that moment. He lives his life that three-year period, but when he gets to the crucifixion, that infusion of God is removed, and then Jesus, the human, is crucified. I don't know if that's the specific teaching that was happening in this local congregation, but it's right in the same era. And John is confronting that head on and saying, oh no, this same Jesus is both God and man at the same time. And I'll show you by water and by blood. And what does the blood represent? His shed blood on the cross testifies to his atoning for our sins that he would die a sacrificial death for all of us. Take all of our sin, past, present, and future, put it into that cup that it's referred to and drink it to the bottom, to the dregs. That's what Jesus did. I, I am convinced that it was a horrible, painful, physical death. But be assured this morning, that was not the pain that Jesus wanted to be removed from. The cup that he would drink, in another part of scripture it says he became sin on our behalf. So think of your dark sins for a moment. Think of the ones that you're not gonna tell anybody about. Maybe it's something you did or thought or whatever. Jesus takes all that into the cup and drinks it. And that produces a separation between he and his father. And he can barely fathom that. It is so mind-boggling for him. But this is what he does and goes to the cross and sheds his blood to secure our salvation. Well, that's pretty heavy testimony at this point. But John now calls in the artillery to back up his pronouncement about Jesus coming through water and blood. Now he's gonna fire the big guns. This is not just John's belief alone. Look with me at scripture. 
And it is in halfway through six there. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. These are the three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given us about his son. To put it another way, it's the spirit who testifies and it's absolute truth. Faith that John is speaking about is rooted in truth. Not human tradition or human speculation or human imagination. It's rooted in truth, the truth of the spirit, which is God testifying about God, volitionally. The spirit saying, we don't know exactly what he was saying, but that Jesus is God. And that happens to us at a personal level too. When the spirit of God indwells you, there is a testimony that occurs that, that absolutely is solidifying in our inward person to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. So this threefold witness is powerful. Now think about unbelief for a second. We can look at it as a pitiful kind of situation to be in, that I would not believe in God. I would not believe in Jesus and his atoning work. And we can feel sorry for someone. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But John says it this way. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. This is different. This is proactive at this point. This is simply not being agnostic and somehow neutrality saves us from something. No, when God gives this testimony and we're unwilling to receive it, we make God out to be a liar. Does that sound harsh? Yeah, because it is. And that's what John is saying. The sinfulness is, lies in the fact that it contradicts God. It's just that we're not making some intellectual assent. We're calling God a liar. Well, that's awful. But John's not going to leave us there. And this is the testimony. Verse 11. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son, God Son of God does not have life. So our very life in Christ is eternal and it's life right now. Not later, but right now. When God initiates, he puts into us life. Because of this faith deposited in our hearts, we are able to embrace Christ and that brings life to anybody and everybody around us. That's what John is saying. You can be assured. If that's not enough, look at verse 13. He's going to give some insurance and now some instruction. I write these things to you who believe in the name of, son of, uh, of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He understands that they're unsettled by these false teachers and they've become unsure of their spiritual state. 
But I want you to look at it carefully here. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. All right. So this assurance is not so much just a general knowledge, but more like freedom of speech. Here's your assurance. You can boldly, with confidence, go before God and ask for anything. And he'll hear you. That's your assurance. Does have a caveat, doesn't it? Here's the caveat. If we ask anything according to his will. All right. So let's just be careful here. We... We don't get to use prayer as a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but rather seeking God's will, embracing it and aligning our will with his. I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but prayer is those, that difficult thing. I have my own set of human emotions and desires and the way I would like to see the world ordered, both in my nuclear family extended on out. And I do come before God and ask for those things. I'm careful these days to say, here's my human heart, God, you gotta know that I'm human and these are the things that I think it should be like. But I have taken my example from Jesus himself, who when faced with the cup came the closest he's ever come to sinning, when he said, Father, if there's any other way for this to pass from me. And what's the follow-up statement? But not my will, your will be done. The Bible is clear that God was pleased to crush his son. That's what it says in Isaiah. It's an awful scene. And Jesus knows how awful it is and he doesn't want to go through it from a human perspective. And yet he bends and submits and aligns himself to the will of the Father. And he has said to you and me, I love you enough, you can endure, you can align with me. You can. Well, don't take my word for it. Look at verse 15, and we know that he hears us whatever we ask, and we know what we have what we know we have what we have asked of him. This is where it really pushes us into the picture of are we going to be able to initiate? Look at verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. For the record, the death that John is speaking about is a spiritual death, not a physical death, but a spiritual death, the ultimate, that you would be separated from God. This love initiated by God that transforms us is now brought into the picture and we are now going to initiate. And if we would see a brother or sister sinning, the security of this community of faith should allow us to go and say, you can't stay there. That's not life. That's death. Move away from that. John goes on to say this. Uh, 
I refer right in the middle of 16 to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Well, thanks for whoever was in charge of the sermon series and giving me this passage. Okay, I'm grateful. What does it mean? This sin unto death, don't pray about that one. There are a couple of theories out there that theologians like to bat around, but significant to our context here, John has written this letter to combat the false teachers. And those false teachers not only had corrupted the gospel, but were willing to teach it in corrupted form. This would be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day when he had been performing miracles declared that he wasn't doing that by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebub, the devil, and proclaiming that Jesus was of the devil. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit denies Christ and his saving work and everything about it and also teaches it. And John's saying, you shouldn't pray about that. But what does that look like in my own life? I shared with you a couple of months back, my brother, homeless, getting in a bad accident and convalescing at my house for a month. And my attempt, feeble as it was, to say, hey, you cannot sustain your life out on the streets. Can we think about something new? And he couldn't. It was very hard for him to see it any other way. And he used to tell me he had a significant ministry out on the street. And if you were to ask him what the gospel was, he could repeat it to you. And I told you that it was difficult for me in that tension to understand because I could see that light, but I have lived with his darkness as well for, for 57 years. He's four years older than me. And how to pray for my brother when all I could see was darkness and think, man, that feels like the sin unto death. And yet there would be those moments significant when he could explain the gospel and sit in a Bible study and actually have a question and how it just was this weird tension, where to pray and how to pray. On September 3rd, my brother died. Died of an overdose. And the further I get from it, the sadder I get. And I would simply just say to you that I'm not talking about a theoretical when to pray and when not to pray situation. I'm talking about my life and your life. And what is John saying? Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those that don't understand. And John's saying, hey, there's there's one that you shouldn't pray for. Well, I'm not smart enough to know who that is. I'm not. But I do know that in my human heart, I can pray and did pray for my brother. And I'll let God sort the rest of that out. I'm not the one who understands completely his will. But if I were to somehow force my will upon that situation, then I wouldn't be in the right place. So I say to you this morning, This is that messiness and that initiation that's required of us when we're absolutely secure in our own understanding of the love of God in our lives, then we pursue others. This isn't going on the hunt for the sinners. This is being close enough to people to understand what's broken, what's hurting, and what's a problem in their life. 
So no guilt here, but if you rely on Sunday morning to get you close enough, it's not gonna happen. Somehow you gotta get closer, that your life can be closer to someone else's life so that this love that's been initiated in our hearts can bounce off each other, like the call to worship. So being in a home community, getting in a small group, go sing with the choir. Look at the community that's built there. I'll leave that in your hands. But if we're gonna pursue messiness, then we gotta get close, because love is a love that initiates. All right, so the final reality check comes in the last portion of this. Look at verses 18 through 21. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Okay, do you sin? Oh, you must not be born of God. Because John just said if you're born of God, you don't continue to sin. Okay, but he has spent the whole letter talking about us sinning, has he not? And what to do when we sin, to confess it and be forgiven and move on. There is a persistent sinner who ignores God. That is not you if you've placed your faith in Christ. You're not a persistent sinner in that sense. You sin and feel bad and guilty and you need to confess and be cleansed. The one who doesn't, never been born of God doesn't give a rip. They don't care. But John's gonna answer this dilemma with the second half of the verse. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one, capitalized, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. That's Jesus. Okay, yes. That's Jesus. So he's the one that keeps. He said it, he said it this way in, in John's gospel. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus speaking, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So continue in sin, we don't. Because of Jesus, stand right behind him and his righteousness. Be consumed with his righteousness and his love for you to go all the way to the cross. I guarantee you, it won't look as good. Sin won't look as good anymore. And love will it be initiated in your life because you love him. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. We also know that the son of God has come and given us understanding. So here's the reality check. The whole world's against you, but he's given you understanding. He's given you the secure and safe place, his love, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is true the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't put anything in front of him that's bigger than he is. And that's why we come to this table every week so that we would lay our idols down and come to the true story of true life. 
There is grace here in this bread and in this cup. And you're to come and feast and drop your idols and appropriate safety from this God who initiates and pursues us in all of our messiness and crap. And when we are filled with his grace, we turn and offer that to our brothers and sisters. Amen? I'm not asking that as a question. It's true, amen. So I want you to come and be filled and be assured of your faith. God has testified to your faith. You are his and you are free to love and free to initiate love because nothing can touch you. Please pray with me. God, thank you for John, the apostle and the supreme pastor who has assured us this morning, some 2,000 years later, of your love for us. And this assurance creates the ultimate safety zone for our hearts, our souls. We are filled completely with your love. And in this moment, it feels right to stand and to sing and to come and feast at your table. And sure as shooting, when we walk out this door, will we be faced with the world and its view? And it's at that moment, God, can we turn and remember and be assured that your love is the engine that drives us, sealed in the very blood of your Son, your Christ, our Savior. May that be true for us today. May we be transformed for the glory of Christ. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.